0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The body motion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah! There's a key
1: Thank you for joining us. We're listening to Evidence or Faith. Rosh of Christianity. Evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Well, I'm Keith Kendricks. And with us is Kevin Harold. Kevin, welcome to the show again. Thank you. We're going to be talking again about the meaning of life, and we're doing a little experiment, kind of a thought experiment. Can we come to the meaning of life just by using logic and only the things that we can know for certain? Can we build on those things and determine the meaning of life? So that's the topic for today. Our website is Evidence for Faith. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can listen to archived shows there or catch us on iTunes in the podcast section. Just search for Evidence for Faith. If you'd like to email us, email, email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, Kirk, we, I guess we should start the show off with our quote, so jump right in. Okay, we have a quote of the week
2: here for you. And this is by author, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Dinesh D'Souza. Is that right, that's Keith? R- that's right. Okay, I'm well familiar with him because he's written a number of books about Christianity and I have quite a few of them myself. Okay, his quote of the week is, quote, Do you believe in the existence of Socrates, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar? If historicity is established by written records in multiple copies that date originally from near contemporaneous sources, there is far more proof for Christ's existence than for any of theirs. And that's from his book called What's So Great About Christianity, page 296, if you'd like to look it up.
1: That's right. Great quote. So, yeah, we do have a lot of evidence that Jesus existed, and it's silly these days to hear some atheist claim that supposedly they say Jesus didn't actually exist. Very silly.
2: Yes. That's long since been debunked.
1: Speaking of silly, uh, we got a few emails from people. Uh, We got an email from Seth, our professor of philosophy from Great Britain, and he was commenting on some of the previous shows we have been working through you know, what we can know for certain about the meaning of life. So he says, hi, Keith, just an FYI regarding your recent podcasts, quote, I think, therefore I am, close quote, is a perfect example of circular reasoning. The I that Descartes was intent on proving was already presupposed. I think, therefore I am. It was Bertrand Russell, if I'm not mistaken, who argued that a proper First premise should be thinking is happening, which does not logically imply a first-person I that is doing that is doing such. Hope that makes sense. Cheers from Seth. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think his point is well taken, although it's certainly not a perfect example of circular reasoning. Yeah, you know, there's a lot better examples of circular reasoning. I don't think you would this really classifies as circular reasoning so much as it classifies as something that is self-evident. You know, anything that's self-evident is essentially a circular reasoning because it depends upon itself for its own support. For instance, 2 plus 2 is 4. Well, the reason we know that is because the de- very definition of 2, uh, you know, and plus is already, that already tells you that the answer is four. Two plus two, you already know the answer is four because it's implied in the premises. Same as, you know, the law of non-contradiction, A does not equal non-A. Well, the fact that, you know, it's very obvious, it's self-evident that A does not equal non-A. So, it's self-evident that if I think I exist. So, you know, that, that's, so that's just one.
2: Your example is we, we're assuming that everyone already knows what the definition of two and what the definition of plus is, so Correct. we can come to the answer.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think, uh, you know, self evident things don't really fall into the classification of circular reasoning. Circular reasoning, you know, if you wanted to do that, it's more like, if I make the statement, the Bible is God's Word, and you say to me, well, how do you know that that's God's Word? And I say, well, because the Bible says it is. Okay, now that <laughs> would be circular reasoning. right? You know, because I'm leaving out all the evidence that shows that it is God's Word. Right. So, it, it can be consistent as long as you're, the reason that you're pointing to it is that you have outside evidence. So. right. So, anyways... That is that comment. And then we had somebody, remember the news item about Richard Dawkins saying that he is, he doesn't call himself an atheist, but calls himself an agnostic. And that made headline news uh, on the telegraph. And somebody, well, somebody emailed us to say, well, that's been his position all along. Okay. All right. So maybe if it's been his position all along, how come it was news?
2: Right. And how come all the atheists are upset about him saying that? Uh,
1: Apparently, yeah.
2: (laughs) I guess they all misunderstood where he was at
1: apparently they did (laughs) but now we can backtrack and say no 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 he always said that okay (laughs) well Kirk you know we are in this terrific thought experiment and I hope our our listeners have been able to follow along with us for the past few episodes we've been doing this thought experiment that comes from a book called me the professor fuzzy and the meaning of life by David Pensgard and I had an opportunity to sit down with David over the internet and interviewed him. So I guess if John is ready, we might as well start by playing the interview with David Pensgard. Sounds good. All right, I'd like to welcome to Evidence for Faith David Pensgard. David, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: David, we've been going over your book. Let me just reach for it right now. Me, the professor, Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life. And I've told people that I really enjoyed this book. I read it many years ago, and I've always kept it handy because I thought it would be a great witnessing tool. And I decided to go over the philosophical ideas that you present on the radio. So been having fun going over the ideas and trying this thought experiment of yours. Maybe you could give our listeners... A little bit of a background. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Currently, I'm in my late 30s. When I wrote the book, I was in uh, my uh, early 20s, and I had just come out of college. And uh, the book is really my uh, my way of, of offering others who were in my situation a kind of defensive Uh, education before they get into the same thing that I had just survived. But uh, in my undergrad I I went through um, a program in biology and so I I got a lot of evolutionary teachings and um, after college I actually worked in a different field for about ten years and then came back to academics a bit later And uh, now I'm in philosophy, and I'm currently an adjunct professor of philosophy at uh, Liberty University. So had you had philosophy training before you wrote the book? Uh, Not really. I had uh, one or two classes in my undergrad that were philosophical in nature, but I really had no training for what I undertook.
1: (laughs) Well, I think you really did a good job. So now apparently you
0: are also an artist, Yes, I had a double major in art actually in college as well, and uh, that turned out to be the more lucrative educational path, but uh, it was good to have the training in all these different areas. I've got a lot of different uh, uh, things under my belt, a lot of different areas of study, so it's it's been useful. Each each thing has been useful for me.
1: Now, I'm really curious, what made you decide to take a serious topic like this and Put it in. I'm not sure. I guess would we call this a comic book? It's not like a graphic novel, so um, it's, it's not a comic book either.
0: Right. It's the subject matter that's different. I think uh, most most graphic novels and comic books have a, a fictitious. I'm sorry, fictional uh, storyline with fictional characters. I just use the medium to convey. Uh, really, is it's just a series of, of concepts. Uh, it's also, it's almost like a lecture. Uh, If you will, but no one wants to sit and and listen to a lecture and no one wants to read an 800 page philosophy book. So I figured that the students and the, the young people I was trying to reach were much more likely to sit through this than they were anything else. Um, that I was able to produce. You know, I couldn't produce a movie or anything that exciting, so I went this route. Well,
1: I think you did a great job. So you were Thank aiming you. at college age or high school or or both? Yes, I was,
0: yeah, I was aiming at people who were about to enter college, and um, it, it also would have worked for people who were in college, I suppose, and my idea was to just provide a basis, a defense for the faith, so that they had a more of an immune system built up when they encountered the same ideas that uh, had really knocked the ladder out from under me when I was in college. And uh, if it wasn't for the um, the help and the and the research and materials that was provided to me by uh, an organization called Answers in Genesis, um, the president of whom wrote the forward to my book, by the way, Ken Ham.
1: Yes, if, that's right. Mm-hmm,
0: if it wasn't for their materials, I, I, I don't know if I would have survived the experience. So I, I was very grateful for it. And I wanted to uh, do something to help those who are in my position. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. Wonderful.
1: Well, the, you also have the book on a website, right?
0: Yes, that's right. I have, um, actually it was on a website first. And, uh, then I, I, it took me about four years to get it published as we worked through, uh, various issues with it. And, um, there were people in Australia who were proofreading it. There were people in the United States who were proofreading it, and uh, it just took a long time. Right. But uh, the website was of a long time, and it's it was originally at a, at the, the address uh, thebigquestion.com. Since that time, it's been uh, taken down from that address, and now it's at thebigmystery.com.
1: Okay, so if people would like to read it, they can go there?
0: Right, it's up right now, thebigmystery, one word, dot com. And uh, all of the pages of the book are available there, but not the foreword by Ken Ham.
1: Now, you say you're teaching at Liberty University, right? Yes, that's right. Do you use this as a textbook?
0: Uh, no, I don't. I uh, The class that I teach has been... Um, designed for me by someone higher up in the department, so I don't have much say in the textbook ah, I can gotcha. use. But uh, students can uh, visit my uh, personal site and, and go to my um, my website for the graphic novel from there if they wish. I try not to uh, push it on them. This is a Christian school, so they're they're not as in as much danger <laughs> right. as, uh, as I was hoping that uh, those who read my book would be in. I mean, I was worried that they would be in. Right.
1: Now, how did you get the idea for this?
0: Um, well, the, let's see, the, the, the content, I think I got the idea, while I was struggling with my own faith, um, evolution really knocked that out from under me, like I said, and uh, so I was, I was trying to basically ground my faith. That was my, my goal, because I was having trouble um, defending my faith. And so I, found, I thought that, that a good argument, a good collection of the evidence would, would help me to do that. And um, so I remember sitting at a table, a kitchen table in a house where I, me and several other guys were renting at right out of college. And, um, I started just laying out the steps of a proof for the existence of God on a piece of scrap paper. And, um, I was assuming I couldn't do it, but I thought I would give it a try. And, uh, to my surprise, you know, I, I got from, from the beginning to the end, I, I somehow made it all the way. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I didn't know you could do that. Um, and since then I've found that, uh, A lot of people have done it in many different ways.
1: Right. I believe Rene Descartes tried it. I don't know how far he got. I didn't look up my Cartesian philosophy before talking (laughs) to you, but uh, I know at least others have tried it, so that's great.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. um, Now now I'm aware of of several arguments, of course, uh, with some philosophical training under my belt, and uh, I I didn't do quite as good a job as most of them, but, you know, it was a fun project, and it was good to know that it can be done. um, And it's not really the kind of thing you can use to coerce people into belief, but it is the kind of thing I've found that can help people who are uh, having their faith challenged. It can help them to to have a stronger uh, basis for their faith.
1: Right, and that's exactly why our show is so interested in your book, because our show is about showing that Christianity is true from mm-hmm. the evidences and also showing that it's beneficial to you. So, after going through this process and realizing that you had a strong logical reason for believing that Christianity is true did that make a big difference in your life
0: uh, yes I think that that helped I, right after college I, I've uh, I started getting into these materials like I said I wrote the book I started studying um, mostly the sciences at first and uh, then philosophy a little later and uh, it's been a kind of a long journey but right now I think that uh, you know I've gotten to such a point that I I'm more secure than most people are on the planet, I feel, in my faith. Uh, you know, I, I feel very secure in it, and I feel I have a very good grounding in uh, the intellectual, scholarly, or academic issues, or however you want to put it, uh, that with which the faith is attacked. So, um, you know, from an apologetic point of view, I think I have a good basis now. How successful has the book been? I, I remember them telling me originally that uh, 5,000 copies were going to be printed, and um, A few years after its first printing, they came back to me and requested a second five thousand. So so far, that's that's been it. So up to ten thousand have been sold.
1: And any kind of uh, pickup from media or
0: anything like that. Well, there's an interesting uh, tie-in with the Wall Street Journal. Actually, Uh, when I was first writing the novel, I had it up on the website, like I said, and uh, the original website was um, mentioned in an article in the Wall Street Journal, and. After that, the, the uh, traffic to the website exploded. I got a tremendous number of, of respondents, and um, I spent uh, several years d- doing email debates with people who read the book online and then emailed me with their, um, with, you know, some emailed me to thank me, some had just innocent questions, and but a lot of people wanted to attack the argument. And so I spent a lot of time defending the argument and uh, digging into it at that point.
1: So does that mean there's going to be a volume two or an edited version or a new edition?
0: No, at this time, I'm not really interested in, in doing another book just like that. Um, my, my current projects are of the text-only variety. So I'm, I'm working on uh, an, an advanced degree, and I'm hoping one day to publish and, and write philosophical research. So that's kind of the area I'm, I'm in right now. So I'm not really doing any more Graphic novels. <laughs> gotcha. Anything in there that you think
1: you'd like to change or, or that you think needs more work or
0: well I would I think I could tighten it up now. I have the tools now to, to make it the argument better. Mm. Um, so from the from the aspect of the proof, the argument itself, I could I could make some changes. I, looking back at it, though, it's surprisingly well done for an amateur, uh, if I could say that without yeah, uh, <laughs> sounding well, I'll arrogant. Yeah, I'll say that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I do think there are areas where I could tighten it up, and I also wanted to clarify um, various steps. Certain connections are are kind of large jumps, and um, people have, have caught me up on a few of them. And it's not that the, the steps are, are wrong. It's just that I needed to show more of my thought as I did it. And um, of course, the whole point of the book, as I said, is a little bit ambiguous um, because you're not you're not trying to coerce people into believing that. I don't think that can be done. Right. But uh, but I think it's it's a good if you can come up and say, look, I can defeat all of your your arguments against my faith. I have good rational grounding for everything that I believe. And here are my arguments. You may not be convinced. But that, what that means is that I'm not an idiot. What that means is that my belief is rational. And so that's the main point of the book is to show these the reader that the Christian belief is rational. It's uh, defensible.
1: Right. Absolutely. Well, we've gotten some feedback. As I mentioned, we've been on the show going through the step-by-step of the ideas and building one idea upon another using just logic and trying to make sure that the beliefs we adopt are things that we can know for certain. So, one of the big things was about entropy and that it's not really disorder. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, anything, anything to add on that? I, mm-hmm. I did s- a little bit of work, and it seems like the, the definition of disorder seems to come from when entropy is particularly talking about right. motion of gases and things like that.
0: Yes, I, I have a, lot, a little more understanding of that, I think, than, when I, than the time when I wrote it. Um, the, the equations that describe the, the motion of, of thermodynamic systems, you know, molecules, and atoms... Um, seem to match identically with the equations that can be used to describe uh, statistics. Mm-hmm. And so statistical thermodynamics became a major field um, in the early 1900s, I believe maybe late 1800s. And that, that's interesting in and of itself um, from a philosophy of science perspective. but what's applicable here is that we're, we're really dealing with with things that are separate. Um, the mathematics and the, the hard aspect of the science on one side and the, the, the difference between chemistry and information on the other side. Um, and Information can be described statistically just like chemistry can. And so you have these two different sides and they seem to match up by the same statistical analysis.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you can, do, you can make associations and you can make predictions with that. You can say things like the chemistry will never occur in this particular way. It's going uh, uphill or downhill. Um, so you can say a bathtub full of water won't spontaneously heat up to boiling. Right. Um you you know that will happen it won't collect the heat out of the room into the water it happens right. the other way around right but and so if you try to apply that to evolution um, you, a lot of people have trouble with these laws being applied this way because thermo-, you know entropy is the main enemy of evolution evolution and entropy are opposite processes right. that's right so how do you go from one to the how do you, how do you make a pronouncement about one to preclude the other and what, what I usually ran into was people who'd say, oh, crystals are ordered. Yes. And, and so there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how these words are being used. You need to, to tighten up your analysis of these words. And this is how I like to distinguish everything. Uh, there are two kinds of order. There's the order that you see in like a crystal with very low information content in a crystal. Mm-hmm. It's just like here's the pattern and repeat. And then there's the kind of order you see in something like a painting or uh, a book Right? We call both of those things ordered. And then on the other side, you have things that are complex, right? If I were to spill accidentally a box of spaghetti noodles on the floor, all of the, the, the uncooked spaghetti strands would be scattered all over the floor in this unbelievably complex pattern, right? And we right. would say, oh, that's complex. It's also a mess, but it's complex. But we would also say a book is complex, right, or a painting is complex. And so what we see is that when these two concepts intersect, complexity on the one hand and order on the other, we're describing information that comes from a mind.
1: Mm.
0: And, and that's the only place where you see that. You never see these things spontaneously coming. So although you see a crystal spontaneously forming, according to the laws of uh, thermodynamics, you don't see a painting spontaneously forming, right? You don't see a book spontaneously being written. Right. Uh, and so you don't, see, you don't see life forms evolving. You don't see spontaneous generation. And so you, right. can't use, you can't use these ways out by saying, oh, crystals are ordered, therefore the order in life can happen spontaneously also, because you're misusing the concept. The kind of order we're talking about when we're talking about evolution is the kind of order that can't come about naturally. So I hope that clarifies it a little bit. I should have written more about that in the book, but... I, you actually did address it
1: a little bit. I, I actually thought you did a good job of doing it but it's the kind of thing that people who are looking for this error, you know, the the professional atheists so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, they're they're going to jump all over this. And one of the other things they jumped on was the cause and effect and that you can have effects without causes and of course you've probably heard they they talk about how particles can appear out of the quantum vacuum mm-hmm. or that radioactivity is an example of an effect without a cause. So I dealt with this on the radio show when I read the atheist email, but how would you deal with that? Is that something you would put into a new edition of the book? or
0: the, uh, As far as the spontaneous generation of particles from the, um, the quantum foam, as it were, the, the substrate, um, the energy for the creation of particles and antiparticles, I think they always go together, is, yeah. um, it has to come from somewhere. So you don't have a spontaneous formation of these particles without some kind of energy, but they, the foam seems to have its own energy as it were it's turbulent you you would have to go back and I mean a philosopher would wonder why does it have energy why does it exist at all what's causing this one event to occur as far as the 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 waveforms coming up and amplifying into a into a particle and an antiparticle so I, I saw a book recently about a scientist. Can't remember what his name was, but he was saying that that something can come from nothing, and uh, that he said space is nothing, and space is the quantum foam, and this quantum no. foam regularly <laughs> produces particles and antiparticles, and so that's his argument for why there's something rather than nothing, and and how we get something out of nothing. But clearly, he's not starting with nothing, so right, it doesn't take very much digging to see that that's a mistake. And the, as far as the event of of uh, radiation, uh, the spontaneous, as it were. Uh, breakdown of a particle in such a way that, that it, it emits a like a gamma ray or an alpha particle or a beta particle. Um, I think the spontaneity of this makes makes you think that perhaps that the, there's no cause involved in that process. Um, however, I would I would I would uh, doubt that there is no cause. I could if we can't detect a cause, you can't reason from that to saying that there can there is no cause. Right. So it's kind of a negative argument. But uh, in addition to that, I, I think there has been some evidence recently. I'm no physicist, but I think I've seen research recently, as I keep up with the science news, that says that neutrinos can have a, a large effect on um, the rate of alpha radiation, alpha uh, decay. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the big research project projects of Answers in Genesis has been the rate project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. but Actually, I am. Okay it talks of, that project deals with proving that there has been a, an event in the past where radioactivity has spontaneously, as it were uh, increased its rate a million times in the past and then settled back down to its present value, and uh, they're looking at neutrinos as a possible uh, cause of that event so, so if, if indeed that is the case, then we have a, a cause for our uh, uncaused radiation event as, as the opponent has argued. Gotcha. Well, David,
1: who's been your biggest fan from um, this, this book? Yes, yeah, so,
0: um, besides us, I mean. Sure, sure. About <laughs> a year ago, uh, a young man—I don't—I'm sure if I should use his name or not. Um, I'll use his first name. Uh, his name is Randy, and uh, he and his wife Karina have built a a an actual physical model. Of what my character is building in the book.
1: Oh, what fun You mean the the, the blocks with the statements chiseled into right
0: right those wonderful. rocks those blocks have yeah. been have been rendered into <laughs> something I think altogether it's reduced in scale, of course um, in the book. I think it's probably something like four stories high. Uh, relative to the human size, but uh, this this one is about six or seven feet high when it's completed. And uh, Randy plans to go uh, from church to church, pre- presenting this as a um, like a little show, a traveling show. So I, oh, I've great. asked him to actually put the video of the show on YouTube, and I'm looking forward to seeing that one day. But so far, he's my biggest fan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, we're we're vying for that here on uh, Evidence for Faith. Well, David, uh, it's been wonderful uh, talking with you. Thank you. And has uh, good to be here. And good luck with your future uh, work. I
0: appreciate that. And good luck to you and your show. Thank you.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Kevin Harrow. And the three of us are talking about the meaning of life. So, guys, what did you think of that interview?
2: I think it's really neat that he's got that guy making the model. I'd like to see that.
1: Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, It must be big foam blocks or something. I don't know. I don't know what else you'd do. Maybe you could make them out of cardboard.
2: Probably if he made them out of styrofoam, he could carve the letters right into that.
1: So for our listeners who have been following along with us, the statements that we can know for certain in the book, they're etched into stone in uh, in the book, Me, the Professor Fuzzy and the Meaning of Life. So I guess we should jump into a continuation of our process. What we're trying to do is we're trying to start from scratch, just use logic and build on the things that we know for certain and try and see how far we can get this kind of a, a thought experiment to see if we can come up with the meaning of life just by concentrating on the things we know for certain. So if you've not heard the previous shows, you can find them on our archived section of our website, evidenceforfaith.com, or you can find them on podcasts at iTunes. But I think, Kirk, if you want to just read through, we got up to 25 of them, or 24 of them so far. So so we have 24 things that you can know for certain. So I guess if you'll just quickly read through all 24 of them and get our listeners up to speed.
2: Okay, so we're going to top David Letterman here with his top 10 list. We have a top 24 list for you. All right? So I'm going to start with number one and go up to number 24, which is the last point that we made. uh, Was the week before
1: last? Yep, two weeks ago.
2: Right. Okay, number one. Drum roll. (laughs) You are thinking. That's pretty obvious, I think. All right? Number two. Thinkers exist. Okay? Number three, you therefore exist. Number four, your thoughts require the passage of time. All right? Number five, you exist in time. Number six, beginnings and endings are possible. Number seven, the outside world exists. Number eight, all events are caused. Number nine, the entropy of the universe is always increasing.
1: Now, we should probably explain the meaning of entropy. Kevin, anybody want to jump in on that, the meaning of entropy for people? It's Typically, you hear it said as disorder is always increasing, but I think it's probably more correct to say that things are always spreading out or going to uniformity. Okay. So everything, like the house that you're living in, is eventually going to collapse and become a uniform part of the landscape once again. It will just return to dust, just as your own body will return to dust. So everything becomes uniform.
2: Would it be fair to say that this is complexity turning into simplicity?
1: Yes. Everything's becoming more simple, more spread out. Energy is spreading out. Every Everything is becoming...
2: Temperature is flattening out. Yep. So this is kind of the opposite of what uh, Darwinism says, which that says that complexity is increasing.
1: Correct. It would be the exact opposite of evolution. That's true.
2: Right. Okay. That was number nine. Number ten, which follows right from number nine. Number ten is the universe is winding down. All right. Number eleven. The obvious implication of that is that the universe had a beginning. Number twelve. The presence of motion requires an original mover, or as Aristotle said, the prime mover. Right. Right? Okay. Number 13. The presence of complexity requires a designer. Number 14. Therefore, the universe could not have begun on its own. Number 15. The universe is unable to sustain itself. Okay. Number 16. Our universe, therefore, is inadequate. It cannot stand alone. Number 17. If that's true, then there must be more. The supernatural. That which is above the natural. Number 18. Something supernatural must have ordered our universe. Number 19. That something was the prime mover. Number 20. The prime mover, one of his uh, qualities is he must be omnipotent. Number 21, he must also be, or it, whatever you, we haven't gotten to exactly what it is yet, it is eternal. Number 22, it is infinitely intelligent.
1: Let's, let's just point out that number 21, it is eternal, it's because we're before the beginning of time. Right. So there's no time. There's no time involved. That's why it's it's eternal.
2: Well, time and space are also creations. Therefore, whatever created them must be outside of them. That's right. Okay. So okay, 22 was it is infinitely intelligent. Number 23 is it must be omniscient, and number 24, God dun, 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 dun. Yeah, we got to get a drum roll sound effect in. Here I know. John's
1: falling down on the job there. <laughs>
2: He keeps tapping his fingers, but that doesn't quite do it for me. (laughs) Okay, number
1: 24, we are at God Exists. (laughs) Dun-da-da-da. So that was really fabulous to think of that just by using logic, just by carefully going through and analyzing only those things that you can know for certain, not taking into effect kind of assumptions or outside interests. You know, there are a lot of forces that would want, want you to not accept these things as as certain and also the uh, basic rules
2: of science
1: yeah that's right and we've been able to come up with that God exists Wow! so remember that this is from me the professor fuzzy and the meaning of life by David Pensgard so now we get to this question okay what can we know about God
2: can we repeat the definition of God from the American Heritage Dictionary
1: absolutely go ahead
2: Okay, it defines God as being a being conceived as the perfect, omnipotent, omniscient originator and ruler of the universe, the principal object of faith and worship in monotheistic religions.
1: A lot of religions obviously have a God, so Kevin's going to just give us a rundown of all the possibilities out there.
3: (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Well, probably not all, but a good many of them. Uh, First one being Vishnu. Uh, who is purported to be the god of Hinduism. Secondly, we have Buddha, or the enlightened man of Buddhism. Third would be Allah, uh, obviously, who hasn't heard of Allah lately, especially in the last uh, recent events, the god of Islam. Next one, interesting one, man, the god of humanism. And I'm sure we could go down a rabbit trail whether humanism is a religion or not, However, it's been established as a religion, and that would be a real good topic for a further discussion at another time. Next would be the universe, the god of pantheism. Then we have animal spirits, the god of animism or tribal religions. Uh, As in church, many times we have missionaries come in, and this seems to be a very repetitive thing when they talk about going to these far-out remote tribes that animism is a very established thing with these tribes. Then we have uh, Yahweh, who is the God of Judaism and Christianity. Second to last is Zeus, the chief God of ancient Greece. And lastly, the stars, the gods of astrology.
1: Right, so who is God? Which God is God? We can have a vote, I guess. I don't know how far we can go with this thought experiment. You know, is it even important that we know who God is, right? You know, does God have a lot of names? Maybe all of those are God.
2: It sounds to me like it's important because, for instance, if the real God is Zeus, that means the next time we do something wrong, we're going to get zapped by a thunderbolt.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's right.
1: So, and I guess, you know, if our point is, if our object is to determine what, try and determine what the meaning of life is, then I guess we're going to have to try to figure this out. You know, which religion, if any, is correct? Uh, can they all be right?
3: Well, if, I think there's a point about when you ask, can they all be right? Because oftentimes when I have discussions with people, this idea comes up that it's not just one religion, but all religions. But as we've just done in a very simple way, going down a list, any time you attempt to define God, you are going to automatically start excluding other ideas about God. Anytime you try to say what God is, you are naturally going to one way or another say what he isn't. So, to say they're all right would be, in essence, saying I'm not going to define any of them at all. Right. That's That's a good
1: point. That's true. So, I guess another question would be, does God want us to know, right? Can we really know anything about him? So, I, I guess we're in a sense we're not finished yet you know we're we're still struggling to see what the meaning of life is just knowing that god exists okay that's a great thing we've been able to reach this far but there's still a lot that we do know that could help us to answer some of those questions as to which god is the god that's out there you know most religions claim to know the answers to all of them right all of those questions so so i think we can you know, have some hope that we can at least come closer. If it matters that we know the answers, right, and if God allows us to find them, then God would provide a means of knowing everything we would need to know. So, of course, if God did want to hide himself, you know, he could be, if, if you're playing hide-and-seek with God, guess what? God doesn't get found, <laughs> right? He's all-knowing. Omniscient. So, if he wanted to stay hidden from human beings, he certainly could. Right. But if it is possible, or if he does allow it, then it would. Then it might be possible, right? No. And it's possible. Possible that one or more of the existing religions is actually correct.
2: Should we perhaps uh, ask the question at this point? Does David Pensgard's book end at this point, or not? Oh no, it didn't. It keeps going. He goes on then.
1: He goes on, yes. We are still going on. Okay. So where do we go from here? Well, let's do the same thing that we've done already. Let's use logic and we'll just start with what we know about God already and we'll just do the same process. We'll compare what we learn with what all of the religions teach and then see who's got the true religion. So I guess, you know, we've got to start with there's so many religions in the world how are we going to narrow down this list okay and this is what pensgard does he first of all he points out that we've already discovered a lot about this god right we know he's all, all powerful and since there are several religions that teach differently then we can already make an important observation which is that those religions can't be valid right, right? we've if already eliminated don't... a few yeah that's right so we've already eliminated because we know that the God who created the universe is all-powerful. So a not all-powerful being, such as, say, Zeus, for instance, would is not a valid, that's not a valid religion. So already you can see that the task isn't as daunting as it seems, we, we, it does look like we can make some kind of progress here. So what Penskar does in his book is he starts giving us some categories, some basic categories that we can use fit the different religions in and then see which category is the correct one.
2: I find this next so, category very interesting that we've already eliminated a major thought process in where we've come so far. Atheism.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's a, that's an obvious category. You could take the religions and say, which are the atheistic religions and which are the theistic religions? Right. And divide it right there. Right. And since we've already shown that God exists, this one's real easy to figure out, right? right. All the worldviews that are atheistic are false. Hoo-hoo. So that would be humanism, naturalism, materialism, Marxism, right? De- Marxism is uh, depends on atheism. Darwinism, etc. On and on it goes. All of those are false. So we know. How do we know? Because of logic and by following a train of reasoning. Only accepting those things we know for certain. I think, so, we're,
2: I think we're starting to part ways with Richard Dawkins right about here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. So we know atheism is incorrect, and that gives us item number 25 of the things that we know for certain. Oh, uh-huh. ho. All philosophies that deny the existence of God are incorrect. Whoa. <laughs>
2: That's there you a biggie. Go.
1: All right, so what's the next major category of religious thought? Okay. Well, Pen- Pensgard says that pantheism versus supernaturalism. All right. All right, now, as a reminder, pantheism is the belief that the universe itself is divine. It's always existed, and it's responsible for creating life.
2: With this kind of uh, pan, it sounds like what you're saying that pantheism and naturalism, then, are pretty much the same thing. Uh, is that correct?
1: No, naturalism... In naturalism, nature is all there is, and that everything that occurs is na- a natural or a physical cause, and there-, there is no supernatural. Right. So, in pantheism, the supernatural is essentially part of the universe. So, oh. God lives in everything. He's in this table. He's in the trees. He's in the rock. You know, the universe is kind of like his body. Okay. And he is the soul that inhabits it, just as your soul inhabits your body, and actually, even your body and your soul are actually part of God, because everything is part of the universe, which is God. Okay. So that's that oneness that comes. uh, It sounds pretty
2: similar, then, but not quite exactly the same thing.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. A naturalist wouldn't like to hear that they're that they're similar. A naturalist is going to say that there is no supernatural. Period. There are no angels, no ghosts, no spirits. No God, no souls, no anything that is not physical and, you know, energy and matter. That's it, period. So that's, that's naturalism. Okay. But is this idea then, right, of pantheism, is that right? Well, think back to what we learned about the second law of thermodynamics, right? Remember that the universe is simply unable to create anything. It's unable to generate complexity. It is only degrading. So, there's nothing but decay and degradation happening to the universe. Our universe, we saw in the thought experiment, is inadequate. It can't even sustain itself, right? It can't keep, the universe can't even keep itself from falling apart. Right. Let alone create life or create itself.
2: And eventually, when everything level, all the energy and heat and everything else levels out, it's going to go extinct.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, then, if the universe is your god, what what kind of a god is it? It's a god that's doomed to die, A god that is incapable of creating the universe in the first place. Hmm. So, therefore, all religions that are pantheistic are false religions. Okay. Okay. Now, that wipes out many religions off the list of possibilities. Yes, it does. Right? Buddhism, Hinduism, astrology, uh, any of the New Age movements, you know, all of those pantheistic religions are false. Okay. Well... I know for a lot of listeners that can be hard to accept. I know several close friends that this would be hard to accept if they're listening. But remember that our conclusions are based on logic and a firm, firmly grounded set of deductions. There, you know, We have followed this through, and if you need to go back to the beginning and listen to the first show and start the process over again just to make sure, then please do so. Because we're not just... You know, making this up for fun. This is really the way things are. This is what we can know for certain. Or to you could den- buy
2: you could buy David Pensgard's
1: book. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's online at Amazon.com.
2: That's where I got my copy.
1: There you go. And to deny that the results are true would really be to deny one or more of the assumptions that we've made. We've made twenty five assumptions so far. So you would have to deny one of those premises, right? And if you think one of them is unreasonable, then you know, as David says, by all means come up with an alternative and work through the process logically and and the consequences yourself. Right. Just remember that pantheism can be shown to be false by the second law of thermodynamics, which is the most rigorously tested law in all of science. Hmm. So even though you may wanna somehow save pantheism, I guess what you'd have to do is deny one of the earlier conclusions in the thought experiment that we've been doing. You know, like, I exist or the outside world exists. And if you, you know, try and deny one of those. But I definitely wouldn't feel good about it. And David Pensgard wouldn't feel good about getting rid of any of those. They seem just too basic.
3: Right. I, th- I think what you just said is an important point, maybe in another way that you said you would not feel good about getting rid of any of these things. I think in my this is my experience and many times talking with people, there is a blurring of the division between truth and how logic plays into truth and emotion in the sense of you're discounting my major worldview, or my religion. Mm, you they are take
1: it personal and you're saying,
3: right, you're yeah. attacking me. No, that's not my motive. I know it's not your motive on the broadcast, but it's rather we're not looking to attack you, but rather we're looking to find truth. And in that process, some toes can get stepped on. But that's not the major motive, but it is a consequence of filtering out truth and non-truth. So I think it's important if you're a a lot of modern thinking is that when you, you mix your emotion with truth that you're going to feel that you're being attacked out of this. No. Lastly, we're seeking to find truth, not to attack you as the primary motive.
1: Excellent. Very good. Very good comment.
2: Kevin, I liked what you said earlier, and I think it applies to this too, where you made the statement that if you try to define God, you're automatically also defining what he isn't. Well, the same thing holds true for truth. If you attempt to define truth, then you're automatically going to define what it isn't. And some people's belief systems are going to fall within that second category.
1: Yeah. And that's why David started this whole discussion with trying to be open-minded, you know, trying not to defend your own point of view, you know, for instance, somebody... Will say, well, I'm determined that pantheism is true. You know, it made a lot. It made a lot of sense to me, maybe, or it came along in my life when I was down and out, and it and it really helped me. This, you know, say new age thing. But really, the only way you can logically support the new age would be to n- deny the second law of thermodynamics that it holds true, or maybe to deny that the outside world exists, or that time is real, right? Or or even the reality of reality. <laughs> um, And, you know, but in the New Age movement, some of the things that that is some of the things that the New Age claims that, you know, they're really forced to. So, but really, it is unrealistic. And I mean that literally it is unrealistic. It's unrealistic. And it's really dangerous in the real world. Uh, Kevin was teaching Sunday school this morning at my church. And he talked about the Eastern philosophers, you know, who they actually do look both ways before they cross the street you know the bus kills them just as quickly as it kills somebody who believes in logic
2: right or they're not going to so, get up one morning and say well I'm not going to I don't believe in the theory of gravity this morning and step off the edge of a building
1: <laughs> right so you know ultimately you have to say there's no evidence to support that the second law is false that the outside world or or reality itself are not real in fact you know the case is quite the opposite and you know, we just have to hope that the facts uh, aren't going to elude anybody's uh, notice. That, you know, if you are a New Age person, just realize that you do, when you're not thinking New Age thoughts, you are living in a real world. You do live by logic, Western logic, and by cause and effect, and by second law of thermodynamics. So, right, right. Um, you need to live an incorporated life. You need to get your spiritual ideas and bring them into the real world.
2: Right, right. Exactly so, right, yep.
1: Well, we've got a few minutes left. Let's let's see, David Pensgard has another category for us to examine religions by, and that is polytheism versus monotheism. So I think we can do that in a few minutes left for the show, and then we'll be able to pick up uh, next week. So polytheism is the belief that there are many distinct gods, right? And right. monotheism is the belief that there's one all-powerful God. Right. Uh, and, and that's where the mono means one. Right. So, by definition, then, polytheism denies the existence of an all-powerful god, right? It kind of divvies up the power, even though there might be one chief god, like Zeus would be the chief of the ancient Greek gods, Vishnu is the Hindu, chief of the Hindu pantheon. So, these gods are the most powerful of all the other gods, but they're not all-powerful, mm-hmm. right? So we have to think, really, which is most likely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, obviously, based on what we've gone through in our thought processes in this thought experiment, there can only be one God, okay? Monotheism wins. An all-powerful God does exist. Polytheistic religions have gods that are really, they're, they're very powerful, but they're inadequate nonetheless. They're not powerful enough to do everything, Right. So the way we can know that is that as Pennsgard points out is that all of the characteristics that we attribute to God are inseparable. Okay.
2: Right.
1: Why does he say that? Because it's impossible for anything to self exist unless it's eternal. Right. Okay. So now this connects then self existence with eternality. And we said that the creator of the universe had to both self exist and be eternal. We deduced that the creator existed before anything else therefore it's eternal so that connects the creator with eternality also the thing which created all other things is by definition all powerful right so the creator is all powerful the creator is eternal the self-existent one is eternal so we see that we also saw that the creator is a designer and must have intimate knowledge of all things so the designer has to be omniscient The creator is the designer, it is eternal, so do you see how they're all incorporated together, so therefore God must be one God. Right. Right? So there are a great many polytheistic religions, tribal religions, animistic religions, Hinduism, Mormonism even is polytheistic, and you may have noticed that a lot of them are also pantheistic, so that's two strikes against them right there. So that eliminates (laughs) most of the religions and worldviews that exist. Hmm. And we could go on to more categories, but it would get very complex. We just have to realize that any religion that denies anything we know about our universe or God must be false. And we'll pick up from there. Next week, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments or questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us on to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.